Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. So I forget if you are you a Denver guy. Are you a Broncos fan? You know, I don't really follow football. Um, I, w- I was just complaining to someone the other day. I'm, I keep losing track of which teams are in what cities. Uh, you know, particularly like the Raiders. <laughs> okay, what yeah. city are they in again? <laughs> like so, the Rams. Oh, just won the Super Bowl. The Rams, St. Louis, right? right? No, no, right. they're in LA now. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so, uh, that's uh, certainly a sport I don't I don't stay on top of as well. Uh, but happy to talk about Super Bowl commercials. Um, <laughs> Happy Friday, everyone. Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Rob and Rich. We just started broadcasting live and we will go ahead and get started momentarily. All right. Happy Friday, everyone. Rich with TMC here with the rundown with Rob and Rich, where we take you into the weekend by talking through all the latest news developments with the mortgage industry. Uh, Each week, my co-host, Rob Crisman. But right now he's not here yet because he's he's getting off a plane like right now. So we're going to get one of those Rob uh, on his phone uh, speak uh, airport. Uh, announcements in the background and and him from some terminal getting yelled at for not having a mask on appearances from Rob here in a couple moments. But uh, uh, we're lucky this week to be joined by a good friend of mine, longtime partner of TMC, the CEO and co-founder of Maxwell, John Passan. And John, good to see you, man. Good to see you, Rich. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And for those that don't know Maxwell, uh, in addition to being a longtime partner at TMC, really, really unique company, John, got started with a really innovative point of sale solution that uh, got a lot of traction within our network, got a lot of traction in the industry at a time where there was a lot of players in that space, really caught our attention. And uh, of course, hearing from members that uh, had adopted you and were, were really happy. But uh, then some of the things that you guys have gone on to develop uh, beyond that. Uh, fulfillment services onshore, providing processing, underwriting, and closing solutions for lenders. I know those of our members that were on board with you, <laughs> yeah, like four months after the pandemic hit, were very happy because everybody was scrambling to get people. And I would always tell people, you got to have some sort of fulfillment outlet that is there and ready. This industry is just too cyclical to just constantly hire and fire. And but you guys are doing due diligence on loans and then have now brought it full circle with Maxwell Capital. We're actually delivering loans in the secondary market on behalf of your lenders at what we've seen some pretty over what they were getting before execution level. So kudos to all you guys have accomplished at Maxwell, John. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. I think it goes back to just a team that um, always wants to listen. You know, we uh, uh, certainly speaking for myself, didn't come out of the mortgage industry and and had a lot to learn. And you know, the way we've learned over time is just listening to our clients. And I think uh, they've kind of drawn the drawn the roadmap out of us as a business. And when we started to point of sale, we started hearing about other problems we could help solve uh, across origination. And so, yeah, into fulfillment. And we just released uh, Processor Edge in December, which is our processor automation workflow tool that we built in-house for our own processors to reduce resubmissions and, and, and drive production. So um, expect to see more of that as, uh, as we continue to grow as a business and listen to the needs of our clients. That's right. You 
was it PayPal? Where were you at? You were at somewhere very notable prior to starting Maxwell. Yeah, I was, uh, I was at PayPal prior to this, uh, leading uh, corporate strategy teams there. Uh, and then prior to PayPal, spent a long bit of my career at American Express. Um, and um, so I've spent, spent my time, uh, my career, certainly in consumer credit and financial services. But uh, yeah, I'm glad to be in mortgage. I've always said like people that are really smart that come into the mortgage industry from other industries, in my perspective, typically do well if it's on the uh, services side and platform side like you did, or even on the mortgage lender side. There's been a lot of success stories, just lender members of ours that uh, led by people that have come from outside the industry. A lot of times that's better, in my opinion, This in, especially this industry, how quickly things are churning over and changing. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to being good listeners and, uh, um, you know, learning from the good people like you and, and, and Rob and others and, uh, and our clients who can, maybe not Rob, but uh, uh, who can teach us about, uh, you know, where, where the bodies are buried and, and, uh, and how to help, how to help make their business better. Good segue, because on cue, Rob, your flight landed on time. Did you slip the pilot of 50 again? You're on mute. There you go. Can you hear me now? Yeah. I, I did do that and you're on to my tricks. So I'm going to mute. There's a little noise back here. So, so go on, go on with your discussion. Absolutely. Oh, good to see you, Rob. All right. Well, John and Rob, let's get into it. And uh, certainly a really surreal time right now, just in the world, uh, impacting our industry a little bit as well. Uh, just with what's going on in Ukraine and uh, nuclear power plant getting shot up and just the whole situation over there really wreaking havoc with the financial markets. Uh, the 10-year Treasury yield plummeted once again. It uh, back down. It went as low as a buck 68 at one point today. I think right now it's like 172, 173, bringing mortgage rates down with it. 30-year fixed rates coming from the 4142 range to the 3738 range with amidst all the all the turmoil in Ukraine. Dow Jones just continues to get pummeled in the stock market in general. It was down 500 points at one point today. Uh, Dow will end up with its fourth straight losing week. Uh, and all of this is, despite an incredible jobs report this morning, I mean, the jobs report this morning, 678,000 new jobs in February. Um, Amidst expectations of 440,000, in addition to that, the unemployment rate ticked down once again to 3.8%. January jobs numbers, which were already great, were revised up a little bit and continues to just complicate things for the Federal Reserve. Jerome Powell really in a tough spot right now because you already have very serious inflationary fears that are justified the situation in Ukraine only stoking those with some of the potential impacts on uh, gasoline and energy and, and other things that contribute to inflation. Yet our economy is just churning along. We're at full unemployment. The consumer spending numbers are still good. In our industry, you've got a legion of people that are armed and ready to buy homes, but there's just no homes to buy. John, I'll start with you. Just your general thoughts on this current crazy and turbulent climate right now we find ourselves in. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't honestly don't know where to start. There's so many uh, entry points to that conversation. I think, you know, the the line I've been I've been saying lately is we're in the unhealthiest housing market in a decade. Uh, I think that's that kind of sums up in my mind what what the reality is. Right on the back of the pandemic, on the back of an enormous uh, demographic shift in, in in the housing buyer market over the last half decade. Um, you know, monthly rents are up 14, uh, percent so people don't have money to put on down payments. Right, housing prices are up 8, 19, 20 percent. Um, you know, I think uh, I saw a report that the number of listings in January uh, was around 500,000, the lowest ever uh, since NAR began reporting um, on, on listings. And so, uh, you know, it's uh, and, and of course, we, you know, it's an inventory problem, it's an affordability problem, uh, just in housing alone. Um, if I can go, go from that angle. Uh, puts a lot of uh, a lot of uh, pressure on um, on all of us on the call and uh, the market to think about where we go from here. Rob, I usually give you this the eight the eight part question, but I, I threw it at John uh, to get it out of the way. So I, I'll ask you the same. Just your general thoughts on the climate right now. So I want to make sure you guys can hear me. Okay. Yep. Good. Gotcha. Um, so. You have to think about the market through because you were talking about the down, you were talking about the, the ten-year and so forth, and, and mortgage prices. Markets tend tend to uh, move off of surprises, and yes, the uh, the jobs report was a bit of a surprise to the upside, but you know that was last week, that was last month. Uh, who knows what uh, Putin is going to do tonight, tom- tomorrow? Uh, we don't know the situation over there very clearly. And so the market is trading off of uh, off of that fear, fear of the unknown. And you are dealing with a situation that who knows where it's going to go. And so there's definitely a flight to quality that's going on despite, just that overshadows, that trumps all of the economic news from you know, last week, last month, you know, last year. So we're kind of in uncharted territory here. And when people uh, tend to do that or tend to be in that situation, they tend to hunker down and they uh, they engage in a flight to safety. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. And you're right, it does put the Fed in a very, very difficult spot because on the one, the one hand, this economy is booming uh, and inflation is uh, not a good, not, not a good place. And it could get worse. Because they are coming up uh, in the spring in Ukraine with its uh, wheat wheat uh, uh, farms, oil prices have gone way up, and so I, I think the market right now is betting on further conflict and lower rates. And the reality is that you know the the Fed doesn't actually control the drivers of inflation right now, right? It's it's not right. like higher rates are going to help semiconductors appear or, or more wheat appear in the market or. Uh, or energy prices going down, right? And so one of the key levers that they have doesn't actually affect one of the things that they're most worried about. Um, and so, it, again, I, you know, you said it already, Rich, it puts it puts Powell in a very tricky situation, right? Which is he probably does need to raise rates, but he doesn't want to slow the economy down. Um, yeah, I think- with the inflation, you're going to end up in potentially 1970s. No, 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 go ahead. Right? Well, I was going to say that, that the, uh, and I've made this point in my commentary a couple times, couple times that what happens in Ukraine doesn't necessarily affect the d- desire uh, for Mr. and Mrs. Rent- Renner to to buy a home. Right. And they want to buy a home. They want to put their kids in a good school district. We're coming up on you know spring and summer and, and families are doing that. 
And so, you know, what's going to happen with Putin, who knows, but they know that they've saved up some money and they know that their rent is $2,000 a month and maybe they can get a mortgage at $1,800 a month and you know, let's go. But as we've talked about, Rich, many times, there's just no inventory mm-hmm. and there's not going to be any for a while. So I, uh, I spent some time with our pal Ivy Zellman last week at a uh, Simple Nexus conference uh, with Lori Brewer, and I talked to her about this. I mean, that this is, this is her focus, and, and she's maintaining that the housing market is over overbuilt. But you know, I, I talked to her and I said, you know, there are a lot of baby boomers out there who just continue to buy homes. They're not selling. And she said, yeah, it's a, it's a real problem that, that can throw the numbers off in a hurry. This, this wealth effect, because the the market environment over the last couple of years has really helped the wealthy at the expense of the lower runs. Yeah. The pandemic has really hurt those lower incomes. And so the higher income families continue to do well and, and they don't mind spending a little more on gasoline or utilities. It's really hurting the lower tier. Now, fortunately, uh, Rich, if you look at that jobs number, a lot of improvement in the uh, service industry. Yeah, the, the you know the lower tier, the the restaurant workers, the hotel workers, and so forth, and that that could be that could be promising. So we'll see if that continues. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting ang- angle you bring up too, Rob, which is uh, you know rising rates. I think a lot of people look at that and say, well, maybe maybe. That'll that'll lessen demand a little bit, and so uh, you know we'll stop the bidding wars. I actually think it'll have the inverse effect, which is, you know, it's going to keep a lid on supply, right? If I've got a two and a half percent mortgage rate locked in for thirty years, why am I going to move, right? Um, or or if I do move, I'm going to keep that house and rent it out because rental prices keep going up, right? And, um, and and just use that as a as a driver of income, um, and so that's not helping inventory either. You know, today I think something like ninety percent. Of rental rentals in the United States are owned by by individuals, not by by these big evil corporations that everyone keeps talking about. And so, you know, that's likely to continue too. This is the rundown with Robin Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, uh, joined as always by Rob Crisman. This week, pleased in the co-pilot seat of the CEO and co-founder of Maxwell, John Passanen. Uh, as always, we encourage your interaction with the show via the chat or the Q&A. So much to talk about right now. If it's the Federal Reserve and interest rate policy, FHFA talking about uh, alternative credit scoring modeling, uh, the home value issue, uh, the construction impediments in America and the need for that new inventory, uh, mortgage uh, servicing rights market continues to be on fire. And I've never, I don't think, seen a recruiting climate like this. So a lot going on. Anything in there that anybody wants to get into, uh, please, please feel free to chat, uh, put your questions or comments in the chat in the Q&A and uh, we'll voice it along. John, you made a great point that uh, has been on my mind. And so we look, we're coming into spring and, and the spring buying market, right? And people, this is when people buy houses. This is when people typically list houses. You want to get in a new home, start a summer, new school district, so on and so forth. Um, but with really no new inventory uh, of note coming to market through, you know, new, new constructed homes and that being really constricted, um, the spring buying season, the strength of it to me will largely depend on how many people list their homes that own a home currently. Many of those people, as you noted, are potential step-up buyers, right? The person that owns the three, $400,000 house that 
wants to buy the $500,000 house, but to your point, you're paying a bigger tax on the back end on the more expensive house because it's gone up more in value. And you're likely sitting at a 2.5% interest rate on your existing home and would be going to whatever it is, 375 or four. So in a pediment there, if you look at the, the, the core logic just came out, everybody, you know, it's like the home value predictions. I know everybody makes fun of me because I, I keep harping on this, but you look at all the projections for home value appreciation this year. Oh, it's going to slow, slow down 4%, 6%, 7%. Tell me how that it's going to slow down. I, I don't understand that. It, it, CoreLogic's latest report for January, now January year over year, up 19.1% year over year, keeps going up. You look at the monthly totals, November, December, January, depending if you look at FHFA or CoreLogic, it's been one and a half, 1 1.6, 1.7% 1 per month. Homes are still appreciating at an 18 to 20% value as we head into a spring buying season where there's likely to be far more demand than there is supply. I don't see, am I missing something here, John? Or I, I, I see 20% appreciation this year again. I think it'll certainly be a heavy year and it's really just driven by that gap in supply and demand. Absolutely. Um, you know, the oldest millennial, uh, which, which you might fear to think is 39 years old, almost 40. Right. Um, and so uh, that's well past peak home buying age at this point. Um, you know, I think the, the peak of the millennial population is just cresting 33, um, putting a big pressure on that demand side. And of course we've underbuilt for decades. I saw a headline the other day that called, you know, the, the building boom and the builder confidence, the profitless boom. Right, that all these builders are going out there and building homes, but they're not making much money, right? Um, with with all the supply constraints and r rising lumber prices and inavailability of garage doors and what have you, right? And so they're they're having to carry these sites for longer. Their costs are going up, but they have they have uh, you know fixed contracts. So it's um, I, I I tend to agree with you, Rob. I don't see a lot of positive signals for housing prices slowing down. Uh, with the demand that's in place. I think maybe the one saving grace uh, is is just all the reshuffling that happened last year. Um, we might see less of that this year as people have, have more or less kind of settled down to the new norms of working remote. So that might might uh, constrain some demand, uh, but that doesn't mean there's more supply. So I'll, I'll jump in because I've been on the road this week. The um, What I'm seeing out there, and John, you like this, is a just this renewed even more emphasis on technology and renewed examination of how companies can cut costs, especially through technology. Of course, some of that is going to involve layoffs, but the fact of the matter is, you know, mortgage-backed security prices are here. You add some service servicing at four to one or five to one, wherever you might be, and the value of that mortgage is here. And that's what, as an industry, we are doing is producing mortgages and selling them here. Mm -hmm. I will argue that the 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 rate the race will go to the lowest cost producer, yeah, because everybody's selling those loans here. So how much how much margin can you get? And to Rich's point, in terms of this inventory and, and house price appreciation, what the market is going to be like, companies are saying that's all well and good, but we need to we we can't have ninety one hundred dollars cost per loan, you know, going forward. We need to reduce the cost per loan, and whether we do that through layoffs with whether we do it through technology that helps existing staff, underwriting technology, you know, prof profitability studies and so forth. That's where I've seen in the last few weeks, a lot of lenders focused, focused on trying to produce widgets, compliant widgets and good widgets at a lower cost. 
Right. And that's really important. I mean, obviously the, the biggest cost there is a lot of the sales and customer acquisition costs, uh, you know, loan officers and otherwise that, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily address specifically on the cost side, obviously trying to make loan officers more productive. You know, the average LO on, on our platform, uh, you know, produces about 15 to 20% more loans per month uh, than the average. Uh, and then we just released Processor Edge, which is our processor workflow and automation platform. Um, we've seen a lot of folks working on underwriting, um, but our view has always been, gosh, an underwrite takes a couple hours, right? And so maybe we can save some minutes there. Processor's managing a file for a couple of weeks. Um, so how do we help her do her job more efficiently, faster, better, uh, with better quality so that we're seeing less resubmissions, it's getting through underwriting faster. And so uh, what that un Processor Edge platform does is helps the processor manage her work make her more efficient. We're already seeing about a 10% reduction in resubs um, and about 10 to 15% more closed loans per FTE on the processor side. Um, it's not too funny, but I always like to joke, it costs, it costs more to make a mortgage than it does a Toyota. Uh, and um, something just doesn't seem right about that. <laughs> hey, John, I, John, I wanted to ask you, and hopefully you can hear me. Yeah. How do you, you have so many clients and they have such great ideas and so much valuable input. How do you formally receive those ideas and that input or is it all informal through your sales staff yeah so we we have um we have like a, a user council of of um, users so that, that's i think really at the core of who we are as a business is going always going listening primarily to the users right the loan officers the processors the loas um uh, the operations managers who are using our software every day and we have uh, you know through any outlet that it comes we have a centralized repository of all that feedback that we catalog and categorize and um, you know we have a team that goes in there we call it grooming right where they go in and they groom that list and identify piece of feedback that we want to prioritize and go up and so um, I think our team does a really good job of tracking you know what's what's hot what's not where do we need to be working and improving what are the key pain points um, so that user council group is really important the general feedback repository um, and then um, and, and then you know Kendall we have a we have our own fulfillment business right we're one of the largest onshore fulfillment businesses now in the United States so we have our own processors and underwriters, and I get to put, you know, my product people and engineers right next to them and, um, and develop software in our own laboratory. And I don't, I don't think you can beat that, right? I can't, I can't ask that of my clients. Uh, you know, can you have our people kind of running all over your business all day? Um, but I can impose that on my own team. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we literally dog, we call dog food, eat our own dog food um, here at Maxwell uh, to, to build a lot of that software. You know, I, I can't... Uh... That's good to hear that you have that kind of network and organization. I can't tell you how many emails I received for the people who work for Rich and with Rich about Rich, and I, I don't I don't have a formal mechanism for for dealing with them. So uh, I may I may take some of your uh, there you tips go. there and implement that. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, and I think this the my perspective. It, it's been very smart to watch you guys string this together and build out this end-to-end -end solution. Because at the end of the day, lenders want to use less providers. They want to use good providers, number one, but they want to use less providers. I think it's starting to hopefully go a little bit more in that direction, but the industry is still very fragmented where it's so many integrations in and out of your main operating system right. and so many different providers. Every vendor wants to make money. So a lot of different hands in the cookie jar. And uh, I just, yeah, I think it's been really smart how you guys have built that out. Um, you know, starting with the front end and kind of building it out from front to back. And one thing I forgot to mention at the outset of the show, uh, we talked before TMC has an emerging technology fund that we started like a year and a half ago. It was an idea of talking about listening to your constituency. One of our members like, hey, why don't we start a fund? And 
start to take a look at these emerging tech providers and you know, not only get a chance to see what's coming down the pike before it's here, but have a chance to invest in these companies and make money in these companies. Your guys' situation was a little bit different. You guys were established. I think it was like Series C, like build out your platform, yeah. honey. Yeah. But our our tech fund LPs looked at that and it was an immediate uh, investment that they decided to make in you guys, which says a lot, obviously, not only are they customers, but willing to invest in your company. And I, they, I know they're all happy with the investment. Uh, <laughs> so kudos to you on that as well. Good. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we're just uh, thrilled to have great people that help us be successful. So um, I think that's why we're that's why we're here. I did want to mention, you know, one of the advantages we have is we get to see data across um, hundreds and hundreds of lenders uh, across U.S. I would say from from Montpellier to Honolulu, um, and uh, um, and what they're doing. And I was just looking at the data before the call. Um, super interesting. Every January, we see this bump. So one of the numbers we track is loan applications per loan officer. So how many loan apps is an LO taking on average? And so. Every year, if you go back, you know, in the, the five, six years we've been in the market, every single January, we see this big bump. Um, typically, it's kind of in a, the 30 to 40% range. So people are coming on, they're starting to apply for loans, looking at homes. Uh, the good news is this year was not different, right? So we saw um, December to January, about a 30 36% increase in the number of loan apps per loan officer uh, coming through the platform. Um, you know, last year, it was 33%, year before it was 43%. So kind of in line with what we've been seeing before, this, this big bump, that doesn't necessarily mean there's inventory to buy, but it does mean there's uh, folks wanting to get mortgages in line with prior years that we've seen before. Then in February, we tend to see a dip. Sometimes it's flat to slightly down. Uh, you know, Last year, we saw about a 14% decline in new applications uh, in February, and then it bumps back up again in March as spring home buying season gets underway. Uh, and so, so far, it looks like that trend is is continuing this year. So um, of all the volatility and things that aren't predictable, uh, it does seem like the year is kind of starting out roughly on track. Um, and I will say from a LO perspective, we're continuing to see LOs outproduce where they were in 2019 still. Um, and so uh, still, you know, LOs will have to certainly do their job this year more than more than they have in the past, but um, starting from a higher a higher level of production, which is good to see. Hey, John, do you break that out based based on credit union or depository or independent mortgage bank? Uh, I don't. We don't break that out easily. I can do that later, but we don't break that out easily um, uh, visibly. So, if you look at our if if you look at our client base, about half of our clients are IMBs, uh, and then you know the other half are roughly split between banks and credit unions. Um, but uh, we don't split that out. Do, do you see a different set of problems or focus or issues uh, for banks? versus independent mortgage banks? Uh, on the front end specifically or just in general? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I think there's different, slightly different features and, and use cases that are relevant. Um, but, you know, most of the, the banks and credit unions that have adopted our technology are just as growth oriented and growth minded as the IMBs that we work with. Um, so n- nothing nothing particular jumps to mind that, uh, that, that makes that a, a huge difference. I mean, there's little feature differences where, uh, you know, how, how they engage with the consumer to begin with, how they talk about pricing. There's sometimes those kind of differentiators, like a lot of credit unions want to do more pricing up front. IMBs want the LO to control that conversation, but those are more feature tweaks than they are, uh, uh, you know, fundamental differences. Yeah. Historically, as you know, independent mortgage banks have, have seemed to attract or do seem to attract more of a uh, entrepreneurial yeah. 
know, eat, eat what you, you know, hunt and then kill and then eat versus, versus the bank, you know, the bank LO sitting there at the branch at Wells Fargo on the corner, you know, waiting yep. for business to come in. Yep. So yep. that's why I ask. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pull the data and see if there's, if there's a meaningful difference. Um, my, my assumption is just given the customer base that we address, we might not see that, but um, I, I, I appreciate in general, that's probably true. Yeah. What about at the processor level? Do you, do you, do you think that processors for independent mortgage banks and, and their workload and their productivity, your sense, is it different than for depository banks? Um, I, again, I think the depositories that we work with, particularly on the fulfillment side, um, tend to operate with the same level of, of energy and focus. I think um, in general, uh, you know, um, uh, and this is a big generality, banks tend to be much more structured and centralized. Um, whereas IMBs, as you'd expect their nature, oftentimes the processors are allocated to a branch or an LO um, and less centralized, um, if, if I could make a generality. And so that can lead to different production levels. So, for example, processors that are less centralized tend to have, um, you know, outsized production numbers uh, because it varies so much branch by branch, LO by LO um, versus, yeah. versus the more centralized model, which has its disadvantages as well. That makes sense. Yeah. And so the goal with Processor Edge, which is the platform that we released, is to provide much more standardization in how documents are managed and scrubbed and tasks are handled and how communication is stored and takes away all that human variability of, of how the, the processor is interacting with the borrower, with the system, and, and managing files through the process. This is The Rundown with Rob and Rich. Uh, Rich Rabinsky with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined by Rob Crisman. And this week, CEO and co-founder of Maxwell, John Passanen, and starting to have some comments come into the chat. Uh, one from Amy Bohr on our team talking about her condo in New York that she listed uh, 11 offers just this week and uh, 35 over ask accepted offer in one day. Uh, one of our members in the chat saying we just signed up with Maxwell yesterday afternoon. What a professional staff. We've been hearing that for about five years from the member base, and then uh, question, any chance of COVID dissipating, opening up more homeowners willing to list and making any dent in the supply issue? It can only help. The number is getting better, but I tend to think that, you know, probably hasn't been a huge impediment to people selling their homes, right, Rob, John, for these last six, seven, eight months at least? I, I, don't, I don't see that, Rich. In fact, <clears throat> if you really wanted to sell your house, you're going to sell your house. And we saw so much price appreciation. I mean, during the pandemic uh, and so, so many bidding wars and, and so much volume coming in, granted a lot of that was refinanced, but if you really want to sell your house, it doesn't matter, you know, scoot out, wear a mask, whatever it is, use the necessary precaution. And now, especially with, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in the Reno airport, I'd say, Sorry. About probably a quarter of the people aren't wearing masks walking through this airport. Uh, this morning, I was in the San Diego airport. There were, there were a less percentage there, but certainly there are these green shoots that are appearing uh, as we come out of the pandemic. And, and as we've talked about, you know, we're kind of done with it. And the impact, though, on home sales and so forth, I think, is more driven by demographics and by people holding on to their homes longer, aging in place, or people who have saved up some money buying a second home or a third home. I, I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to and 
in uh, Illinois and Ohio who are either looking at buying places in Florida or Tennessee or have recently bought places in Florida or Tennessee or have owned them for a while. So they're living in, you know, Chicago or Illinois or, or Ohio, but they've got a second home. Well, that second home, you know, takes it off the market. And right now, demographic, demographically, the people in Florida, the local residents, they want to buy a house. They can't, they can't afford to buy a house because of the people coming down from either the Northeast or the, or the Midwest buying properties. So it is a real, real problem. And I think the demographics of that, once again, coupled with immigration, coupled with divorce, coupled with whatever, whatever it is, that the, the millennials that are coming of age, I, I think that's the fact, those are factors that far outweigh um, the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Rich, you mentioned the 19% year over year increase in housing prices. I think if you look at uh, markets like Arizona, you may, I don't have the numbers here with me, but if you look at Arizona, I think Naples, Florida was like the fastest growing something like 38, don't quote me on the number, but 38% year over year appreciation to Rob's point, people buying second homes and, and, and driving demand, which is demographic. I have to wonder though, Rob, do you think, you know, from a COVID perspective, some of those baby boomers that maybe want to move closer to their to their families uh, as they age uh, will drive some uh, some more inventory, or do you think that's already happened? I, w- I would say it's still going to keep going. Um, I, t- I talked to friends whose whose kids are in their twenties, and you know, a topic of conversation is, "Oh, are you going to fill? You know, are you going to follow little, little Scotty to uh, you know the outskirts of Chicago, or are you going to follow Katie up to Seattle?" Or what are you going to do about that? And so, once again, the, the, the gap, and we really haven't talked too much about the gap between the haves and the have-nots, but it, I think it's growing wider. And the, the haves generally have the means to get a little uh, condo near Scotty or Katie. Uh, they have the ability to buy a second home and bring the family together two or three times a year. Uh, they have the ability to do that. And I'll tell you, um, and, and Rich and I have talked about investment strategy for, uh, before, and I'm kind of a stick in the mud with a bunch of water utility stocks. But the the sense that I get out there is that people, if they've got money, they would rather put it into a into a house, whether it's a second home or a non-owner occupied home, something tangible versus a non-fungible token or uh, IBM stock. You're not buying NFTs, bond. Rob? What's that? Said you're not buying NFTs. No, <laughs> I've read I've read the description of them dozens of times and still can't sink into my cranium exactly what it is. What it is. So, do you do do you are you? Uh, I, no, I, I don't either. I, I but I also don't, I don't invest in art or you know other other esoteric assets like that. So, it's um, yeah. yeah but, I, I think but, you're right. Right, it's like buying something hard that you can touch and feel and understand. At least yeah. somewhat the value of it is weapons. Weapons. Those are concrete. <laughs> Stocking up on, on armory. No, we shouldn't go there on the show. But uh, no, but I think I think from from an investment perspective, real estate over time tends to do very well, especially the last couple of years. And once again, demographically we've got millions of millennials who want to want to own a home. So I think it's I think it's rich to your question about will it keep going? I, I, personally think it will but no tree grows to the moon right we rates rates go up to eight percent it'll definitely hit affordability but i just don't see rates going up 
But even that, I mean, you look at like a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage at four percent is is what fourteen fifteen hundred a month. Uh, you know, three hundred thousand dollar mortgage at even six percent is what seventeen eighteen hundred a month, right? So yes, it's more three hundred some dollars a month, and that's not meaningless. But yeah, you can you you, you know for, for folks that are in the market and can buy homes and have good jobs, an additional three hundred bucks is not not unheard of. <laughs> and that's my whole belief that home values are going to go up another 15 to 20% this year. It's based partially on that. If you look at rent prices, I mean, rents are through the roof. It is a better deal in almost every market in America to buy a home, even at these inflated values and higher interest rates than it is to rent. And, you know, that's ignoring the building wealth and the building equity piece of it. So, uh, Rob, you talked about the haves and the have-nots, and there's just no question that gap continues to widen, specifically as it relates to housing in America. And despite the fact that we have a presidential administration that really is hell-bent on diminishing that gap, uh, but they, there's nothing they can really tangibly do to do it, or at least this point have done, um, it takes me to my next topic. And I think this may move the needle a little bit on the margins, but alternative credit score models. Rob, we haven't really ever talked about this. It's something that FHFA has, Fannie and Freddie, long, oh, you know, like E-Close six years ago. Yes, we, we, we embrace it. We want it, you know, but nothing really has been done. It's uh, What are your thoughts on alternative credit? The, you know, the people that want to see alternative credit score models think that FICO and the old model, they kind of unfairly penalize some emerging demos in America today. So John well, wants to talk about that dog first. So. Well, so I don't know if you watched last week's show. I was in front of the, the Little Rock airport and there was a drug sniffing dog circling my luggage. And now I, I found myself in the, uh, in the like pet me uh, booth or whatever, you know, these dogs are all like hanging out and, uh, and, you know, pet me. So hopefully they're not, drug sniffing because I've got I didn't bring the edibles this time to ward them off. So uh, the the credit model, you know, I was talking to uh, to Tracy King about credit and changes in credit recently with Partners Credit, who's been on the show here. And there's a definite shift going on, but it seems that the agencies and let's say the the agency's credit box is as big as my screen here. Because of overlays, because of aggregators, what lenders are doing is lend, lending. They aren't meeting the full, they aren't expanding to the full credit box. And when I talk about expanding, it's not so much, oh, let's bring back Nina or, you know, stated this and whatever, Ninja, Ninja Loans. It is utilizing the credit that the agencies already are offering. And, and so one of the big difficulties that lenders are having, especially smaller lenders, is saying, well, the agencies are out here, but we're going to put these overlays on, so we're not going to go there. And the agencies are saying, wait, we are offering some really cool programs out there. We are looking at rent, you know, for, for example, which any loan officer will tell you is the number one determinant of whether somebody can afford it or going to pay a mortgage. But they aren't, the lenders are not going out to the full extreme. So, so I think that not only do they have to go out to what's available now, but I think We'll see Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with this emphasis on affordable housing, first-time home buyers, really, really pick that up. I was on, I moderated a panel yesterday in San Diego with MCT, and on my panel was Wells Fargo, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. And I think obviously they can't talk about the future too much. In fact, they they got kind of mad when I said 
what what are your quarterly earnings going to be next quarter? For some reason that that set them off. But the fact of the matter is, I think we'll see some interesting changes coming out of the agencies. And the question is, are those going to be able to filter down through the aggregators to to John's clients, for example? Yeah, and, and I think that's that's our challenge and our problem to help solve too for our clients, which is when that borrower shows up and clicks the apply now button, how do I help the loan officer to, to know all the potential programs and guidelines that, 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 that could give that borrower a home that they may not be aware of, right? That's always traditionally been the problem uh, is even the loan officer being aware of what those guidelines are and how to, how to uh, guide and, and direct a consumer to it. Right. And so that's a, that's a problem that we want to help solve for our clients in the industry to make their loan officers more productive and, and ultimately give access to homeownership, which is our, our vision as a business um, and, and why we exist. And Rob, you make a good point. People don't lend, and not all, but a lot of lenders don't lend to the extent of the GSE credit boxes. And why? Because think about it. All right. So if it's the Fannie Freddie 97% programs, maybe they only go to 95% um, because they're typically lower loan amounts, low profit, and more risk, at least in their mind. So, and, and the flip side, if that loan goes FHA, they can make 106 on it. So I've been saying this for years. The GSEs should start paying more to lenders for products that fulfill what they want their mission statement to be. And the Fannie and Freddie never hit their affordable lending goals. They've missed them several years in a row. We there's a story we were talking about four or five months ago that Sandra Thompson wants to up the goals and finally hold Fannie and Freddie more accountable to them. I could tell you right now, they're never going to hit any of those goals unless they start to make some more real world changes you want to make a little bit more, start paying lenders a little bit more on those loans. It's the same thing with the state bond programs. They're a pain in the ass to do. You make zero money. They get their 70 days in your pipeline, tying up all kinds of resources. We've had some members, one of our members, uh, Jack Thompson, smart guy, legacy uh, lending out of New Mexico. He got together in New Mexico with a bunch of like other mortgage lenders in New Mexico. And they went to the state and they made this exact argument. And the state of New Mexico upped the price that they pay mortgage lenders on bond programs. It was by like two points or something. Like more of that needs to be needs to happen. Sounds like uh, Rich that Jack needs to lead a breakout session in Florida in a couple of weeks. <laughs> he has. We've had him lead a session on that. I think so. Yeah. There's been other states that have copied that after talking to him. But it's that type of stuff. I I mean Fannie and Freddie because they're competing against FHA. Which lenders make gobs of money on? They make they're very they're not making that kind of money on, on especially getting you know these last couple of years it hasn't mattered as much. But this type of climate going forward, lenders are looking to squeeze every drop of juice out of the lemon. I, I think that uh, getting back to your point about a ninety seven percent whatever, and they'll go a lender will go to ninety five. You don't want that ninety seven to turn into a ninety seven point oh one because the underwriter failed to miss some you know, some payment and suddenly you have a buyback situation. So it's, there is you'd be right. If you're a conservative bank, like I worked for banks my whole life before this job. I can tell you right now, the way that banks, most conservative banks look at home values is they have to look at it from the standpoint that the opposite of what I'm saying, where it could bubble, it could reverse because they went through 07, 08, 09 and got punished badly um, when, when values reversed. So they're going to be very, very conservative on high LTV stuff and this type of climate where homes have gone up 20% two years year over year. 
Yeah. Nope. It's the interesting cavalcade. And then you have the real cynics, Rich, who are out there saying, well, why should we, why should we expand anything? Because there aren't, there aren't enough places, places to buy now. Right. <laughs> so. Right. It's a, yeah. It's a sort of social kind of argument. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, I think you got to continue to try to do things to make homes to fulfill Fannie and Freddie's goals of, of putting more people on the margins in homes. Um, but you're right. It's, it's kind of the tail wagging the dog with the supply issue. And it's a tougher thing to control is supply as opposed to demand. Uh, John, what else, anything else of note to you in the marketplace uh, with your, what do you got like 300 customers now these days? You guys yeah, about 350 through? now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, just going down the road you were going, I think that the, would love to see the, the government do more to stimulate the supply side, right? There's a lot of talk about demand and helping low income and making it more, more affordable. Uh, but a lot of that affordability is going to be driven by supply. And so I think there's more that the government could be doing there to create more supply. Uh, in the market, you know, for example, you know, capital gains, sales tax holidays, and things like that to stimulate folks to unload some of their properties, right? Um, so we haven't, I haven't heard much the of those Sur- things Sur- happening. The Sorbinsky plan, they keep, <laughs> we keep coming around to that. I read a column today: sixteen million vacant homes in America. You know, you talk about, and then well, open door. We talked about last week. They're sitting on like six million homes or something that they haven't sold. Like, we need creative solutions to fix this. It's not an easy fix. It's not, you know, incentives for home builders to start building, to actually make it worth their while. I, I, you know, this whole hoping that everybody does the noble thing and starts offering the full extent of the Fannie Freddie credit box and builders are going to start building $250,000 homes they make no money on. It's never going to happen. We need real world and creative solutions to fix what is a very serious inventory issue in housing in America. That's right. And building is going to take a while. And that's why some of the the carrot and stick stuff on the policy side could could move the needle in a, in a shorter period of time. And they could, well, I want to say they could move quickly in government, but maybe quicker than building a house, uh, one would hope. <laughs> Rob, anything in your email inbox of note uh, these last couple of weeks, just pulse of the industry uh, type stuff? Uh, companies trying to lower costs. That's That's the... That's the thing. Like, like I said, either through technology or through selective cutbacks, and, and really, uh, managers being managers about, and that's you know it can be tough tough decisions ahead, and I think we'll continue to see tough decisions ahead. But that's I'm hearing a lot about that. And then uh, then I think you know there's some lenders out there that are looking for looking for opportunities to continue to grow um, or at least maintain margin. Um, you know things that they've always done in the past, pushing in new channels. Uh, you know, some, some being acquisitive. So I, I think there's still a decent amount of that activity out there too. Fulfillment. I mean, honestly, I, I can't tell you, uh, every lender member I talk to of ours is overstaffed by between 10 and 50%. Now the dilemma is they're all trying to grow. They're all trying to recruit, right? So they're out there recruiting loan originators. So you don't want to lay people off, I guess, in that type of climate. Um, you got to have a sharp pricing pencil because you're showing these recruits your rate sheet. So it's a really tough climate. You're overstaffed. You can't really let people go because of the sim- symbol that sends your existing and potential employees. You have to price aggressive with no margin because it's very competitive. Um, but this industry, it's why I applauded what you guys did on the, with the 
onshore fulfillment side of things, John, it, it's just an industry. I'm not saying I'm not promoting layoffs. I'm just saying this industry is way too human. Like if you would have talked about it's way more human than it has to be in terms of bodies producing loans, more expensive to uh, produce a loan and to make a Toyota. That sounds like a joke. It's really not. Um, think about that. It's true. I mean, that's insane. And, you know, I think lenders are going to have to get a lot more creative and a lot more nimble. And listen, you have a good fulfillment partner. You could ratchet it up when things get busy, right? And you can ratchet it down when things get slower. But Or, or, uh, or make, a, make a bet sooner that, hey, we're going to pull our capacity in-house way back. And if things end up being better than we thought, then we've got a backstop with a fulfillment partner um, uh, also, right, and so that's the other way that um, two two of our clients are looking at that that way, which is we're going to take steps now to manage our cost base aggressively, and if things end up better, then you know we've got a partner that can scale scale there with us with a fully onshore high quality team. So, yeah. well, we are about at the end of the road here, Rob. You've been the world traveler from uh, making out with Adele in the first row of the uh, All Star Game in my hometown uh, last weekend to. Uh, MCT and Simple Nexus this week. Are you back home uh, now for a little bit? Or? I am. Uh, I have all of forty-eight hours of downtime, and then I'm gone for two weeks through uh, Arizona and Tennessee and San Francisco, and then back to Tennessee, and then accumulating in the pinnacle event of the year, of course, which is TMC. I, I get to go early to TMC and hang out poolside with an umbrella in a drink and uh, watch the seagulls. Are, do you get in Friday? Um, are You're getting in Friday. We might be able to do the show in person, like wow. sitting next to each other. We, we, should we try to pull that off? No? Just, just don't put your hand on my leg like you did last time we did that, Rich. <laughs> John. Rich, maybe you can, Rich, maybe you can meet him at the airport and you guys could do it at one of the gates. In the airport terminal, right? With the, yeah. the drug, just don't let any of those drug-sniffing dogs. Uh, yeah. get, <laughs> this mountain dog looked like it was going to take your leg off there. So, uh, John, any uh, weekend plans of note? You mentioned uh, the you got some overcast weather. You're out in the Denver, Colorado area. Yeah, I mean, I'll be up at the uh, the NBA Midwinter Conference up in uh, Beaver Creek here on, uh, on Sunday. So looking forward to connecting with some folks up there. You a skier? I am. I mean, you, you almost can't be, be out here, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Cool. Excellent. Well, John, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for really having me. appreciate the partnership. Been almost five years now. Remember, you guys were yeah. not brand new, but... There was just something, close to it. Yeah. there were so many point of sale providers at that point that we were assessing. And uh, I remember uh, talking with Tom Gallucci, it was just something about you, something about your leadership team, something about your guys' vision for the industry uh, that really, really appealed to us. And man, I'm glad we made that call because you guys have been a great partner in so many ways for, for TMC. And some of our members are now invested in you. So uh, they've got even more, more reason to cheer on your success. But thank you for joining us. Today. Good to be here. Thank you, Rich. Good to see you, Rob. Rob, and uh, as always, uh, good to see you. Thanks for uh, paying off the pilot to get on the ground on time. And yeah, we've got uh, one more next Friday before we may be doing the show uh, in person together in, in Miami. So next Friday, next Friday will also be an on location treat. Okay. And if we do it in person in Miami, I get in there in the morning. We might like have to start drinking at like noon to make the show even more entertaining. 
I know you start drinking at noon every week. Yeah, I, I mean, what's, 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 give, yeah. Give, give, me, give me something new to shoot for, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And to our attendees, thanks, as always, for uh, ending your week with us. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern with The Rundown with Robin Rich. And until next Friday, have a great weekend. Thank you, John. Thanks, Thank again. you, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care, guys. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.